Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Florida has played a major role in the film industry. We'll visit the former Shamrock Studios in Winter Park. We were here with a picture called Johnny Tiger, which Universal released in 66, but we shot it in 64, and we did our interiors in here. We'll discuss documents and artifacts from the United Spanish War veterans, so we have individual registry documentation. We also have some of their preceding minutes for the local camps. And then we also have these scrapbooks. And we'll catch up with Emma Dietrich from the Florida Public Archaeology Network. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's music from a dance scene in the 1966 film Johnny Tiger, where Chad Everett, as the title character, does pelvic thrusts, hip shakes, and jumps with abandon in a Florida bar. Johnny Tiger is a seminal caught between tradition and modern society. The movie was shot in central Florida, including at Shamrock Studios in Winter Park. Florida played a major role in the film industry from the very beginning, particularly in Jacksonville. Rodney Cavan worked throughout Florida in the 1950s and 60s as a film director and production manager. Yes, uh, I got this second hand from Dick Pope, who founded Cypress Gardens and was a walking encyclopedia of the motion picture business and had a lot to do with promoting it in the state of Florida. And uh, according to him, in 1911 through 13, that era, Jacksonville was the world wintertime headquarters of the motion picture industry. Because guess what? Up in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is where the movies were made, it snowed in the wintertime. So they came as far south as Flegler's Railroad would go. But uh, it went because of two reasons. First of all, there were a lot of small companies there that didn't bother their budgets too tightly. And if they needed a fire truck going by, they'd simply set up the camera on a Jacksonville street and pull a fire alarm box. And they'd do their car chases amongst the streetcars without advising the streetcar company. And that sort of upset the city fathers, so they were not too friendly at that point. But at that stage, the industry was beginning to move west. And that kind of ended uh, the big hub in Jacksonville at that time. Phil Simpson writes about film and is president of the Popular Culture Association and American Culture Association. The film industry did not begin in uh, California, as many people might assume. Uh, it actually began in New York City and Chicago but uh, the early film industry did do quite a bit uh, down south, including in Florida. And in fact, one of the first early film studios was Calum, and that was set up in Jacksonville, Florida. And they did a lot with uh, early silent film, including giving Oliver Hardy his start in silent film. Jacksonville uh, initially was quite welcoming toward the early film industry. And in fact, the mayor there, provided a lot of economic incentives for the film industry to set up in Jacksonville. Now, in about 1917, uh, the mayor had a reform candidate running against him, and the reform candidate had pledged to do something about the disruption that the film industry was causing 
in the streets of Jacksonville uh, because, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of disruption that a film company causes in the normal day-to-day uh, -day, uh, in any town. Also, the sensibilities of some citizens were offended because the film companies would sometimes stage scenes in public on Sundays, and that didn't go over well. The reform candidate did win, and uh, so therefore Jacksonville suddenly was not so friendly to the early film industry. Uh, there were other companies uh, in the early silent era in Florida, including uh, the Norman Film Manufacturing Company, and they were significant because they uh, used all African-American actors as their cast, and this was for segregated audiences in Florida. But it did provide an opportunity for early black actors to perform in uh, heroic leading roles, and it was a non-stereotypical kind of role. So the major film studios began to set up in Hollywood, California, because that was a much more economically friendly environment for them, and began moving away from Florida and other cities in the South. But still, there's a pretty significant early presence in Florida, the film industry. After the major film studios moved to California following World War I, Florida remained a popular place for location shooting. By the mid-20th century, smaller film studios appeared around the state, and some were involved in major productions. Bruce O'Donohue is the owner of Control Specialists, a traffic engineering and management company. His business is in a building that used to be Shamrock Film Studios in Winter Park. We moved into this building in 1995, and at the time, we get our bucket trucks uh, service, our businesses, and then uh, traffic signal systems and operations and maintenance. And so uh, the gentleman, Gordon Causey, who came and certified vehicles, said, you're not going to believe this, but I used to work for Davy Tree two doors down. And well, I, he made it sound like 1961 or 62. He said uh, they were shooting a project, and they needed a 60-foot bucket truck, and they got Davy Tree. They rented this truck, and I took the cameraman up, and he says, that, that yard you've got back there? He says, uh, they dumped a, a truckload of uh, white sand and planted some palm trees, and from 60 feet up with the camera, it made it look like you were looking at a Polynesian island. And he says, it was pretty spectacular. He says, that place was called Shamrock Studios. And he says, uh, and I think they ended up making a movie and uh, eventually moved out to Hollywood. After Shamrock Studios left the building in the 1970s, it was occupied by a pest control company and Palmer Electric. Current owner Bruce O'Donohue says the building design is clearly best suited for a movie production company. The offices in the front of the building seem to be sort of executive management uh, style offices. Um, this is a building that I'm not sure an architect would be proud of. It looks like it just sort of keeps going like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, this is 16,000 square feet under roof, uh, which is hard to believe. And when you see the, the warehouse, it was really a soundstage. And, and again, the bathrooms are not small bathrooms. They were large because they were showers and dressing rooms. So it was, it's a big place. Filmmaker Rodney Cabin. We were here with a picture called Johnny Tiger, which Universal released in 66, but we shot it in 64, and we did our interiors in here. We had uh, an exterior location in Longwood at the old hotel, and these were the hotel room interiors that, uh, for the scenes that took place there. And then we had a bedroom scene for the house that was out on our location at Wakiva Springs, which is just a false front. So we were here about three days, and it was a nice studio. It worked very well. Robert Taylor, Chad Everett, and Brenda Scott were the three stars involved with the shots here. Building owner Bruce O'Donohue. 
What we're using as our, our business warehouse was originally uh, used for soundstage and, uh, and production for whatever they were filming, whether it was, my understanding, it could have been commercials, could have been second unit production for movies, uh, TV shows. Uh, and, and so uh, when you look at the ceiling, you notice that there's electrical outlets and other pieces of equipment that was probably used for uh, what they had to do for, whether it was scaffolding or other equipment, uh, clearly not a normal warehouse. It was definitely used for, uh, for film production. Filmmaker Rodney Cavan. Right now, of course, it's a warehouse, but as a studio, this was a wide open space until the production company moved in. Then we had the setup, uh, which was three walls, the entrance doors and all the things like that, and, the, and all the furniture and props to make it look like a real interior scene. And the floor was a clutter. It would have light stands with the lights and grip equipment and the various things like that. Cables snaked all over the floor for the light distribution to the lights. And then, of course, the camera and the camera dolly. And they had to keep things clear so it could move around as, as needed for the shot. So it was a clutter in a way, but an entirely different clutter than it is today. Typical movie set. Kevin has fond memories of working on the film Johnny Tiger. It was Robert Taylor's last feature. He did uh, two made-for-television movies for MGM before he passed away. And, and this he looked for as a crowning change in his career. He said, I'm 50 years old. Why am I making love to 22-year-olds in these pictures? He said, this is my change from a romantic lead to a character lead. And he really looked forward to it. In fact, he was willing to do anything to promote the movie. He was so thrilled about the change. Very nice gentleman. I enjoyed working with Robert very much. In addition to owning the building that formerly housed Shamrock Studios, Bruce O'Donohue has another tie to the film industry in Florida, appearing in the 1989 Ron Howard film, Parenthood. So I was president of the College Park Little League. Uh, they needed extras uh, for the Little League scenes, and uh, Coach Miller for the city of Orlando called me and, and then uh, said, heads up, you're going to get a phone call from these folks. And so we ended up getting 36 uh, boys from the College Park Little League. And uh, actually, they, I was not going to be in the film, but I was going to be there to make sure everybody was safe. And uh, Robert Stewart, city commissioner today, was supposed to be the base umpire for us, and he was a umpire for the league. And uh, Robert called me up one day right before the shooting. He says, I can't be there. And so I called the casting director. I said, I'm short somebody. And she said, well, why don't you do it? I said, all right, I guess so. So I just did my little job uh, out there. I was with him anyway. And then the last day, Ron Howard came up and said, hey, sign this. We, we want you to make a declarative in the film about uh, uh, Steve Martin's son catching the, the winning ball and winning the game. And Okay. So, uh, and lo and behold, it made it to the final cut. So I was an official actor and it was a great, fun, fun time in 1989. It was the, the, uh, very exciting all around Orlando for all the different places that were being used and people, you know, being in the film. He's out of there! In 1987, both Disney and Universal announced that they would be building film production studios in Central Florida in addition to movie-based theme parks. The name Hollywood East was being used to describe what Orlando would become. Phil Simpson says that didn't happen. It's odd that it turned out that way because Florida truly was in a very enviable position uh, to be Hollywood East. And it's still, to me, a little uh, disconcerting that it played out the way it did. Uh, New York and Florida, during the 1970s and 1980s, were, they were the second busiest locations 
for films shot outside of California. I mean, they were neck and neck. They were truly rivals, you know, for that honor of second place, and that's that was significant. The smart money would have been on Florida uh, because of the year-round weather being so favorable for film shoots, uh, because of uh, an infrastructure that supported uh, such endeavor, uh, because of an inexpensive labor force. And then, of course, you had uh, the opening of Disney MGM Studios, and that was in 1989, and then Universal Studios Florida, and I believe that was in 1990. These were primarily theme parks, but they also had film studios attached to them. And so there were many TVs and, and movies that were produced in those studios. And of course, Florida itself was a prime tourist destination. So you had the theme parks and a studio component to those theme parks. and. They were set. I mean, it was really primed for that kind of endeavor to succeed here. But something interesting happened, and that was Florida's tax incentives for filmmaking began to dry up. And so by the early 2000s, most of those had gone away. There was also a high-profile uh, failure of a tax-incentivized company in Florida that was set up in Palm Beach in 2012, and that was Digital Domain. And so there was a lot of bad feeling in the state legislature after that uh, because of all the money that had been lost, all that upfront investment was just gone. And so after about 2012, you didn't see much with tax incentives for filmmakers in Florida. So really what's happening right now is that a lot of this is, uh, a lot of the filmmaking activity has shifted over to Georgia, in particular the Atlanta area. And uh, there's a lot of uh, creative filmmaking types in Florida that are actually either commuting back and forth to Georgia or actually moving there because that's where the, where the business is. To find out more about the film industry in Florida, check out Florida Frontier's television episode 28. All episodes of our television series Florida Frontiers are archived online at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. As you practice social distancing and are looking for educational materials over the coming weeks, be sure to utilize the resources available at myfloridahistory.org. We have 36 episodes of Florida Frontiers television available for viewing and hundreds of radio programs. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're looking at an extensive collection of documents and artifacts from the United Spanish War Veterans. Yeah, that's right, Ben. In fact, the Florida Historical Society holds one of the most extensive collections of both proceedings manuals, but also artifacts and scrapbooks related to the USWV, or as you said, the United Spanish War Veterans. And this group was one of, at least at the beginning of the 20th century, one of the largest veterans organizations in the United States. And it consisted of veterans who had served in not only the Spanish-American War, but also the Philippine-American War, also known as the Philippine Insurrection, and the Chinese Relief Expedition, which most people would remember as the Boxer Rebellion, when the United States sent forces over to China to quell that rebellion. 
all of those veterans were actually rolled into one organization in 1904 called the USWV. And really their primary purpose was to create these departments. So each state was considered a department. And then within each state, there were camps. And those were local uh, groups that would get together at regular intervals. And then every year, there was a national encampment that was held in a different city throughout the United States. And the purpose of the group was really to advance veterans' rights. They were seeking pension benefits and, and federal benefits, veterans' benefits. But they were also working to help kind of keep the memory of what their activities were alive. They would lobby Congress to allocate funds for memorials, for statues. In the 1920s, they successfully lobbied Congress to help fund a uh, USS Maine memorial in Havana, Cuba. And there's also other memorials throughout the U.S. that commemorate events, not only the Maine, but the Battle of San Juan Hill and some of these other events. But they were also working to kind of stay together, as is the case with a lot of veterans organizations. It's about kind of a sense of fraternity and memory and belonging. You know, these people had all sort of experienced the same thing, and they wanted to to get together to kind of keep that memory alive and to sort of comfort each other in a lot of ways. This is, you know, long before the, the diagnosis of things like post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that. But these young men who had experienced these activities got together every year and kind of shared that common bond. So the USWV was the avenue for these veterans to get together. And they had sort of taken up the guard after groups like the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, which was a Civil War organization. And the United Confederate Veterans, after these people were dying off, the USWV kind of took up the reins until after the First World War when groups like the American Legion took over. But they survived and were active throughout the 20th century. Now, there's some really interesting documents that are part of this collection, and you've pulled some rather unique objects as well from the United Spanish War Veterans. Yeah, that's right. And like I said, each state represented a department. And within each department, they would have their own departmental meetings and then would get together every year to have an annual encampment. One of the first things we're looking at is the first official proceedings book from the first encampment, National Encampment of the USWV. This dates from 1904. And it includes their purpose statement, brief list of some of the membership roles, how many people were in the organization, which at this time, once they had taken all of these smaller groups and and combined into the USWV, they had about 20 25,000 members at that time, but it swelled to tens of thousands of people. And at its height in the 1920s, there were a lot of people involved in this group. But we have the very first proceedings uh, book from 1904. In fact, we have a complete set of the proceedings books. But we also have these other artifacts that I think are exceedingly rare, one of which, as you've alluded to, was this flag. This is actually a flag that would have been used for the departmental meetings, but also brought to the national encampment. And this is the official flag for the Department of Minnesota, of all places. And we also have other smaller ledger books. The one we're looking at here is the Graves Register for USWV Department of Oklahoma. So another thing that the veterans group did was they maintained grave sites. And say if a veteran died and the family couldn't afford a headstone, the USWV would allocate the funds to give them a headstone and give them a grave marker and actually pay for their burial, regardless of when it happened. If they died in the 1960s, the USWV would take care of that. And this is a register, this big, thick book right here, of all of the veterans who were from Oklahoma or who at least died or were living in Oklahoma and died in Oklahoma or part of the local Oklahoma department, they're all listed here. So for genealogists, I mean, this is an incredible resource. And this is just one of several that we have in our collection. 
We also have a large collection being in Florida of Florida camp documents. So we have individual registry documentation. We also have some of their preceding minutes for the local camps. And then we also have these scrapbooks. This is a really interesting one. This is a scrapbook put together by a resident of Jacksonville for the entire year of 1898 till early 1899, covering every newspaper article that dealt with the Spanish-American War or the the Philippine-American War. And then some other artifacts that we're looking at, too, are some of these actual pieces that were part of the war. This is a canvas backpack, and inside the backpack is part of a pup tent. Uh, This is a tent that that a soldier actually used from one of, I believe it was an, an Illinois volunteer regiment. They actually used this tent in Cuba. We also have a dagger here. This is a portion of a shirt that was worn by one of these Illinois volunteer soldiers. Then a few other little pieces. This is a neat one, too. We're looking at a stamp that was part of the, the PR campaign for the, the USWV, and it shows you know a person holding a flag, you know, and it says, do not forget the Spanish War veterans. So just a, a real fascinating and, and diverse collection of material and includes just a lot of, a lot of information. Well, Ben, what ultimately happened to the United Spanish War Veterans Organization? Believe it or not, the national encampments continued until 1992, when the last surviving member of the USWV actually passed away. So as more and more people passed away, camps were closed, and in fact, entire state departments were closed, and that all of this material was passed on to the surviving camps. And a lot of those people, uh, believe it or not, lived in Florida. People retired to Florida. So there were a lot of people who were older, who were members of these organizations, who inherited collections from Minnesota, Oklahoma, New York, and these other places. So that's how the Florida Historical Society got it all, because some of the last surviving camps were in Florida. So by the early 1990s, the organization dissolved. But as I talked about earlier, there are other groups like the Disabled American Veterans and the American Legion and and other groups that have sort of taken up the reins of the lobbying capacity of the USWV. So even though the veterans have all passed away by this point, the idea and the legacy of what they did in the 20th century for veterans' rights continues on today. Well, some really interesting history here. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the fascinating objects and artifacts and documents we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Emma Dietrich from the Florida Public Archaeology Network recently did a presentation for the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute. She spoke with Holly Baker. The Florida Historical Society, founded in 1856, has supported Florida archaeology for more than a century. It was the first statewide organization dedicated to the preservation of Florida history and prehistory. Today, the Florida Historical Society continues the tradition of supporting archaeology in the state with the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute, or FHSAI, headquartered at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. The Florida Public Archaeology Network, or FPAN, is another organization dedicated to the protection of Florida's archaeological resources. Emma Dietrich is the Public Archaeology Coordinator for FPAN, established in 2004, she told me more about FPAN and its goal to educate the public about Florida archaeology. Our job is to promote Florida's buried and submerged past, and we do that through 
public engagement and education, uh, stewardship and conservation. And so we are a statewide nonprofit and we're hosted through eight regional centers throughout the state. So you can find an, an FPAN office for whatever specific county you're in, you'll have a public archeologist and we're there to provide any sort of assistance, potentially be that liaison person, uh, get you in contact with the right archeologist or the right organization. If you come across something on your land, if a storm happens and something washes up on the beach, who do you contact? What's the chain of command? We're here just to kind of make that a little bit easier. Florida has a long history with an abundance of archeological sites, both on land and in water. From shipwreck remains to tools and pottery found in shell middens, Florida's multicultural past is reflected in the artifacts that people left behind. Kind of my favorite part about FPAN is just being able to teach people that Florida has a deeper history. A lot of people that I engage with are not Florida native. I'm not even a Florida native, so people move to Florida and they're always taught in traditional education. Jamestown is the first. Plymouth first. They don't really realize Florida has this deeper history. And so when you talk about it, they're like, oh, Florida, it's Miami and Disney World. But in reality, it has this deeper, much broader culture and being able just to tell people that there's over 14,000 years of confirmed human history here. And it just shocks everyone. Emma Dietrich told me about a few of the archaeological excavations that she's been involved with in Florida, including the Tristan de Luna settlement site near Pensacola. They had uncovered the 1559 settlement of Tristan de Luna, who kind of job was to settle Pensacola area and then make it a St. Augustine. It was an attempt to settle Florida and get a Spanish settlement in place. We ended up finding the site in 2015, and it was based off of a avocational archaeologist who was walking past a construction dirt pile in his neighborhood and looked and was like, oh, that that's an old piece of pottery. I know that. And contacted the University of West Florida and they confirmed that this piece was a piece of Spanish olive jar that was dating to the right time period. And then it turned into full-blown excavations throughout the entire neighborhood. And it was really nice to work with because you talk about public archaeology, but this is sites that are physically happening in people's backyard. The history was being exposed. People were learning a little bit more about their area in the sense that people there were there before them. Learning about the history that's literally underneath them. Learning about the British land grants that existed and the second Spanish cattle farms that were in the area. All the way back to 1559 with this Spanish settlement. Probably the coolest site I've gotten to work on in Florida. But have you, there's so many others that I've gotten to visit or just to experience. Florida has some amazing history. As Emma Dietrich points out, Florida archaeology is special for its diversity of influences on the state. What I love most about Florida archaeology, archaeology and Florida history itself, is the fact that it's kind of unexpected. Or when you talk about it, people don't realize Florida has had that deep time. Or even just the more recent development of Florida. It's kind of like an idea of being able to enlighten somebody that Florida does have this history. Uh, I'm also a very big geek about shipping and travel of people, and obviously Florida has a massive coastline. So just the transportation of people throughout Florida and the communities that were being impacted by, you know, the Spanish coming in, the folks who are living here, and all the different countries that have inhabited us over time. I just think it's a very unique meshing of cultures. You don't see the layer cakes of Spanish sprinkling of French 
British, Spanish, then the American territorial period where it's still kind of Spanish-y, and then the big boom when we become part of America. It has this layering that just is unique to the rest of the states. For more information about the Florida Public Archaeology Network, go to fpan.us. You can also learn more about Florida archaeology by visiting the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute's website at fhsai.org. There you can download our annual magazine, Adventures in Florida Archaeology. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can utilize our educational resources available online at myfloridahistory.org and find our daily Today in Florida History posts on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.